This is Macro Horizons, Episode 69, Mnuchin, the Rapsicle. Presented by BMO Capital Markets, I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of May 18th. As we prepare our Zoom screening parties for the July 3rd early release of Hamilton the Movie, we couldn't help but ponder the similarities between the first and the 77th Treasury Secretary. This one's for you, Lynn. How does an investment banking graduate of Yale, dropped in the middle of the Donald's presidency, grow up to be the Treasury Secretary? My name is Stephen Turner Mnuchin. Just you wait. Just you wait for she... The president of China. Get it? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market got a lot of information, but did very little with it. We did see a disappointing core CPI print, largest drop ever which is consistent with the downward pressure on consumer prices, but nonetheless does remind investors of the risk of a deflationary impulse as a result of the pandemic. In addition, we did see a reasonable reception to the 10-year refunding auction. We've been chatting about the influence of Japanese investors for a while, and now that the return in treasuries hedged back into yen is once again attractive, we were not particularly surprised to see the record large 10-year auction go reasonably well. Treasury yields did back up in anticipation of the refunding auctions. However, that move was not retained, and in fact, the range continues to hold, with 10-year yields squarely in the 60 to 65 basis point zone. Consumer confidence came in surprisingly stronger than expected on Friday. Now, keep in mind that this is information for May, whereas the vast majority of the data that we've seen thus far has been focused on April. So this means that the disappointing retail sales figures were easy to dismiss in the context of a bounce in confidence. Overall, however, the primary themes remain. The economic data continues to reflect activity in the middle of the lockdown and in the middle of the pandemic, and so the market doesn't have any context from which to move forward. In fact, we continue to expect that the market will be effectively flying blind until at least early July, when we get a better sense of what the June data looks like. Now, while the pace of initial jobless claims continues to fall, reports are still coming in in terms of multi-millions. And so it's difficult to say that the damage that's actively being done to the labor market is behind us at this point. So going forward, we will continue to watch the jobless claims figures, as well as some of the incoming sentiment data. University of Michigan consumer confidence being a reasonable gauge. 
with very little other real-time economic data upon which to rely, investors will continue to watch the movements in domestic equities, and we've been impressed with how well the 2900 level in the S&P seems to be holding, at least for the time being. The question of whether or not risk assets have gotten ahead of themselves still remains. In the near to medium term, we expect to continue to see the rates complex trade off of the incoming information about the reopening of the U.S. economy. It's still far too early to determine whether or not the reopening will be deemed a success, but for the time being, all eyes remain on the process. So CPI lowest ever, retail sales control group lowest ever. Are treasuries asleep? Well, it certainly appears as though the treasury market has chosen a trading range and decided that regardless of what the economic data says, they're just going to stick with it. And that range, at least for the time being, appears to be between, wait for it, 54 and 78 basis points. Now, we've been on about that range for quite some time. We think it represents something other than a true equilibrium for rates, rather just a holding pattern until investors have more information from which to stage another repricing. We continue to believe that there's a reasonable probability that two-year yields drop below zero, even if the Fed doesn't ultimately experiment with negative rates. In fact, we heard on Wednesday from Powell himself that negative rates are not on the table. Nonetheless, it was fascinating to see the Fed Funds futures market continue to price in negative rates in 2021 regardless. Ben, what's your take on that dynamic? Yeah, Ian, it's very interesting that despite hearing straight from the chair's mouth that negative policy rates are off the table for the FOMC, investors in the Fed Funds futures market didn't really blink. In fact, we now see Fed Funds futures still with a negative rate in early 2021. To me, what this suggests is that the FOMC's reluctance or resistance to using negative policy rates, that's been known. We have not heard from a single FOMC member anything in the realm of support for that policy tool. The closest we got was Kashkari saying, never say never. Fair enough. But the corners of the market that had the conviction to put those trades on in the first place understood this. So the fact that Powell came out and expressed something that was already known really was just confirming an idea that was already widely accepted in the market. So effectively, the Fed is saying, right now, given everything we know about the world, we cannot envision using negative rates. But opinions change when the facts change. And I could envision a situation in 2021 where the V-shaped recession ambitions gave away to a W-shaped reality, and the Fed does need to do more. Whether they use negative rates or not remains to be seen. And that's the essence of what is being wagered in the Fed Fund's futures market at this point. Yeah, and the timing of what might ultimately shake out as a W-shaped recovery meshes well with the pricing in the Fed Fund's futures market. That early 2021 timeline, if in fact we do see a W period of recovery followed by another drop-off, albeit not as severe as this first round, 2021 makes sense in that regard, which circles back to the pricing we're seeing in the futures market. So for now, negative policy rates off the table. However, if things get bad enough and Kashkari's never say never comes to fruition, the depths of the second drop in the W make sense around that timeline. 
And as you point out, Ben, that is clearly the primary risk that investors are struggling with at the moment. One of the other major divergences in financial markets that has been highlighted by us and others is the continued outperformance of domestic equities, even despite the dismal economic data. Part of my interpretation of this is based on the idea that the economic data is so bad that we lack context for how bad it is. What does a negative 25% real GDP print actually mean to the labor force? Well, we know that 20.5 million individuals lost their jobs in the month of April, but what we don't know is how many are going to get rehired in June and July. Yeah. And in a sign of the times, the fact that we're sort of waving off the difference between negative 25 Q2 GDP and negative 35. I mean, in normal times, the debate is centered around tenths of a percentage point. Now a 10% swing, meh. And as you say, Ian, really the question becomes those 20 million plus people that now unfortunately find themselves unemployed, how quickly and how much of those job losses are ultimately recouped? maybe is the first and really only questions on the mind of investors at this moment. Well, Ben, it's not your parents' recession. Millennial. And to the broader issue, when those workers are re-engaged in the economy, they're not likely going to be re-engaged at a premium from where they went out. I think that this is one of the background factors that risks seeing inflation expectations lose their long-held anchor. I could easily envision a situation in which not only are fewer people brought back in, particularly in the hospitality and travel industries, but their wages will be structurally lower going forward. Where then is that demand-side inflationary pressure that the Fed was struggling to achieve even in 2019 going to come from? As the Fed has experienced over the last decade, it's a struggle to actually produce real inflation in the environment that was prevailing before the pandemic. After the fact, I think that what we'll see is a Fed content to focus on the pillars of inflation that they've been successful in driving, and that's primarily on the asset price side. So asset inflation via equities, we've already seen that start to play out, and then on the housing side. There's a big debate at the moment about how the real estate market is going to shake out when all is said and done, particularly in the tri-state area. We've actually fielded a few questions very specifically about that. Will the drop in mortgage rates ultimately translate into a bull market for suburban houses? Well, given a transition to more of a work-from-home setup, that seems to be the direction of the initial impulse, at least for the time being. And the drop in mortgage rates is certainly a reason to be optimistic on the housing market. But from a longer term perspective, and this is a risk that we've talked about a lot even before the pandemic, the demographic issues facing the US, particularly in that millennial cohort that you so love to highlight, low light, is that the subsector of spenders that are going to be expected to sort of pick up the mantle, purchase their first homes and drive the next leg of an expansion in the real estate market, even before the pandemic, they were facing some serious headwinds in that regard, most notably student debt that has up until this point delayed some of those purchases and delayed household formation in keeping with the themes of how the pandemic ultimately alters the shape of the economy going forward. While there has been a lot of emphasis put on the millennial generation and the student debt overhang, there's also, as the chairman pointed out, passage of time in and of itself complicates matters. There is a generation after 
the millennials. There are new workers that are coming into the labor force. Are they saddled with the same amount of student debt? Well, presumably to a large extent they are. But as older workers stay in the labor force and continue to hold on to those jobs longer, what I suspect we'll actually see is an increase in competition at the medium and entry level for a lot of professions, which will further cap how far wages are going to increase. The feedback loop between this and monetary policy suggests that it will be a very, very long time before the Fed ever contemplates hiking rates again. Absolutely. And all of this with the backdrop of April's CPI data, which was the biggest drop ever month over month. So the fact that the Fed was facing these challenges in stoking quote unquote true inflation, even before the pandemic, really limits expectations for its ultimate upside coming out of it. And this again emphasizes the point you made earlier, Ian, which is Maybe the best they can hope for is asset price inflation, and any flow through that may actually have to the real economy. Well, speaking of lowering expectations, one of my biggest takeaways, at least from the labor market's perspective from the last financial crisis, was that workers who are living longer, healthier, and more productive lives are going to extend any projected retirement ambitions as a result of what has occurred over the course of the last two or three months. Now, this will most likely result in a decrease in the labor market participation rate as sideline workers see their skills and networks slowly start to atrophy the longer they're out of the market. On the topic of atrophy, then what did you make of the refunding auctions? A plus transition. It was a good week for Treasury supply, all things considered. In the wake of last week's larger-than-expected auction size announcements, this sort of intuitive concessionary rise in yield ultimately brought out a pretty strong bid for tens in particular, as yields were off the local yield highs, but still six or seven basis points higher than where they entered the day of the refunding announcement. Now, sure, 30s tailed by half a basis point or so, but given we're in such a low-yield environment with such large auction sizes... I think the Treasury Department's going to take that. And in particular, the follow-through to the auctions, the bull flattening that we saw in the latter portion of the week, is really a strong indication that supply is not at immediate risk of breaking the Treasury market. And especially ahead of the first 20-year auction since 1986 next week, $20 billion on Wednesday, the takedown that we saw for 10s and 30s has to be an encouraging detail and really, I think, points to what will be a solid first auction for the new bond. Well, the other takeaway from the week was that tins are, once again, big in Japan. And what will be notable is whether or not on a hedged basis, the positive yield pickup that Japanese investors can get in the 10-year sector translates out to 20s. It would be nice, at least from Mnuchin's perspective, to have that as a core investor for the new benchmark. But that does remain to be seen. One of the bigger issues that continues to drive sentiment in financial markets overall, treasuries, equities, credit, etc., are the anecdotes that are coming out of the reopening process for the U.S. economy. We've seen several key regions in the U.S. move closer toward reopening, and as we get a better sense of what the new normal will look like, I would expect that we will start transitioning to a different 
perhaps slightly more optimistic trading environment. Does that mean that 10-year yields are going to break the range that's been in place for the last eight weeks? That seems unlikely. I anticipate that the range in 10s will hold well into June, if not beyond. Now, the logic here is unsurprisingly pretty straightforward. We're now seeing economic data for the month of April. It won't be until July when we get the first glimpse at what the June data was looking like, which will be the cleanest reopening transition period economic indicators that we're going to see in the foreseeable future. Not to mention the fact that although it's easy to forget, summer is still coming. And as a period historically marked by lower volumes, less conviction behind trading ideas, generally lighter staffing levels, that, at least on the margin, is another reason to expect yields to hold this range until, exactly as you say, there is greater clarity on how the initial reopenings were going. And given the delayed nature of economic data, July at the earliest, maybe even August, until there's a truly clear picture about how the initial upswing out of the depths of the pandemic took place. Another dynamic that tends to play out in financial markets is we often bring into the new year a sense of animal spirits. This year is going to be great. Clearly, this year is not going to be great. But that doesn't mean that sentiment can't reemerge as the summer plays out. I think that it is well within the realm of conceivable outcomes that the optimism typically displayed in the first and second quarter is simply delayed till the latter part of the year. Now, this is complicated by the timing of the presidential election, as well as the realities, unknowable at this point, of what a post-pandemic economy will actually look like. Nonetheless, there is a compelling argument that the worst is behind us, at least in terms of risk asset performance. So, best summer ever? Gotta be the best summer ever. What did Don miss? I see what you did there. In the week ahead, investors in the treasury market will have remarkably little new information to trade off of. We do see the new 20-year auction on Wednesday afternoon, which will be followed by the FOMC minutes. Now, the FOMC minutes will provide some context for the Fed's new array of programs, as well as further refine the understanding of the current Fed's take on the risk for negative policy rates. As we heard from Chair Powell, negative policy rates are currently not on the table, all else being equal. However, there will be a lot of new information on the real economy that comes out over the coming quarters. We do get some updated information on the housing market, building permits, housing starts, both expected to be down more than 20%. Philly Fed for May, which is seen bouncing, at least on the margin, in what we anticipate will be an echo of the sentiment reflected in the Empire State data. Overall, our core trading bias remains unchanged. We continue to see the trading range for 10-year yields of 54 basis points to 78 basis points holding for the foreseeable future. It won't be until we have a better sense of the post-pandemic realities that we could see a breakout in either direction. Downward pressure remains on yields in the very front end of the curve, putting negative two-year yields on the radar, although we're still 15 or 20 basis points away from that at this point. As we progress further out of the lockdown and economic activity picks back up, we will be watching investor sentiment as reflected in the equity market for any incremental trading impulse. 
the shape of the yield curve remains a directional trade. Our bias to see a steeper twos tens curve push up against 60 basis points has yet to come to fruition. The flattening that occurred in the wake of the refunding auctions has extended and in doing so has really cemented the range that has been in place in twos tens and five thirties as well. Overall, as we transition into the summer months, we expect, as is typically the case, that trading activity in the treasury market will slow down. There is a strong argument that the pandemic has delayed a lot of trading activity over the last couple months, and once the market is fully re-engaged, that we could see another significant repricing. All else being equal, the tension between the upside risks for inflation in the longer term versus the downside risks for deflation in the near term should serve as a guide, particularly further out in the curve. Before we get there, however, the market will need to get a better sense of the depths of the recession. And for that, we will continue to watch the developments in the employment landscape and, of course, the pace of consumption as the month of May quickly comes to a close. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As our home confinement release date emerges on the horizon, we'll lament not having an excuse to explain our lack of beach time readiness. Remember, round is still a shape. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. 
BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.